Hello and welcome to Uncommonly Good. I'm Alan Ladd, as always, joined by Mike Reed. And today this is our third episode of our second season that we're doing. And it's all about perception is reality. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit excited for this today, and really excited for you know our guest speaker that we're going to have on that I really think is going to drive this home for, for us and the power of just the importance of what perception is is the reality of some things, and so. Um, you know, one of the things that I want to talk about is I, I went to Africa uh, two years ago. And when I went to Africa on uh, a little trip, I noticed that we go by this this little jungle. And as we go by this little jungle group, this small little village people, there was a bunch of about well, 12 baby elephants. Um, and so I see these elephants and they're got these ropes around their, their ankles. And as we kind of sit there, and I'm just noticing that that's how they're, they don't have a like a dog collar on them. I mean, it's a rope around this ankle. Well, as we go and take another tour in another village, well, they have four very, very large. I mean, they're full-grown elephants. And we're sitting there watching it, and as I notice, that's... They have the same rope, itty-bitty rope, around the, the ankle. Yeah, around the ankles of those elephants. And so I asked, I asked our guy, I said... Are you telling me that they're expecting that rope to hold those huge beasts of animals to not move? He says, yeah, because we train them when they're young by putting that same rope around them. They can't go anywhere, and we just keep that. And when they get older, they don't know any different because the perception is to that elephant is the reality of I can't move. Yeah, I can't I, break this rope. Yeah, I, I can't break it. And so that elephant never does does know how great it can be because he was trained so young by that rope. Well, there's a Netflix series called 100 Humans that's on that's on. And uh so we start we start watching it. Well, what they do is they get these 100 humans and they just start doing ran all sorts of It's all it's a social experiments and yeah. like psychological experiments, right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that get on there which uh, being in our profession and being and being around uh, kids and, and adults alike, as it as it's going through this social experiment, I'm I'm 100% seeing the accuracy of what they're doing, and so they get these 30 people, they get the Guinness Book of World Record uh, plate spinner, a guy that can get like a uh, it looks like a straw, you know, a, a stiff straw, yeah. and he they gets put a wooden dowel, yeah, wooden dowel, and he gets these plates, he puts these plates on top, and he sits there and spins it, and he's okay. phenomenal. So uh, they bring these 30 people in, and he trains them for, I don't know, a good hour on how to spin these plates. So they send the 30 people off to go practice a little bit more. The scientist people bring the, the Guinness Book of World Record guy over, and they said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to put uh, you sitting down at a table. They're going to come up, and they're going to show you how well they've done do they know do they know what the experiment like do they know that the experiment is what you're fixing to say or do no. they think it's a no. hey the experiment is is we want to see how different people of different ages can like adapt to fine motor skills or whatever well they know that it's going to be a competition so okay. whoever can spin the plate for the for a certain amount of time gets points for however long they can spin a plate oh, okay. Okay. and how many times it goes around and then they have to do a trick with it and then they get as point. well and so whoever and, does that they get a so point so they want to see so that's what they think they're there mm-hmm. to do but in all actuality what's really going on is what okay so that the judges tell uh or the scientists tell the tell the Guinness Book of World Record guy they said hey 
when they come up to, to earn their points and do that, you're going to critique them at the end of it. And we're going to give you a red ball and a uh, green ball that's in this box. Okay. And so you, he's going to reach in there before they come in to do it. And if he pulls out a red one, he has to, he has to cut them down. Cannot say anything positive to the person. Then, if he reaches in there and pulls out a green ball, then he sits there and goes, Oh, well, I'm going to say something positive to the person. Well, these people are coming in and, and all that, and he was really struggling with it because he all of a sudden grabs red ball. Person comes in. It's not doesn't do a very bad job. Not great, but doesn't do a bad job. And it just wasn't in his personality, but he's like, you're terrible. Like, you're awful. Well, the person that's doing it is like, oh, my gosh. Like, oh, this yeah, this guy ain't very nice. Yeah. Well, then some people were coming in. He's drawing the green ball. Well, they couldn't even hardly get the thing, the, da- the plate to even stay on the dowel. It fell right off and broke. And then he sits there and has to go, that is awesome. Great job. I see so much potential in you. So he goes through those 30 people. This one girl is the best of the 30. I mean, she is. She takes it like a duck to water. And she gets in there she's spinning that plate she does all these different tricks and things like that and uh and so the thing that's so funny off the the thing that's so funny off that is he pulls the red ball and he was so excited so excited for for what she was uh, you know doing and he he draws that red ball when he draws that red ball then oh it breaks his heart that he's going to have to tell her you are awful. You're terrible. You're no good. Well, he draws it, tells her all that stuff, and it just, you could see it just, defla- oh, yeah. yeah, it just deflates her. So they get done with it. He goes back, he meets with them as a group, and he says, Hey, you guys have three hours to practice, and then you're going to come go back, back and, go and you're going to do it again and see, and we're going to see how much you guys can better and how much practice time affects whether you're doing, which they know the practice time has nothing to do yeah. with it. The points don't have yeah, nothing to do with it. They're not worried about any of yeah. that. They want to see who the people yeah. who got red balls, how, what they do, yep. and the people who got green, what they do. So the people that got the green balls that, that sat there and were like, oh my. got the positivity. Yeah, the positivity. Like they sat there and they improved, improved. They all went up on their points. The girl that was just dominating everybody, I mean, just was unbelievable that got that, that red negativity, uh, just gave up. Like just crushed her. She tried, but couldn't get the plate to stay on there, couldn't spin it. And so it's just that perception is reality that, you know, when if you tell somebody they're a dog long enough, they're gonna start barking. Yeah, they're, they're gonna start they're yeah. gonna start barking. And and that's where I'm really kind of excited about, you know, our guest speaker that we're gonna have on today because nobody has been able to do um what Tim Buchanan has yeah. done over such a, a tenured time, over decades of time, and the achievements that he's had in the last last eleven to ten years for sure. And you know you're bad to the bone when you're on Wikipedia and you can Google you you know look up that name and that name's coming in. I, are you on Wikipedia? I'm no, not. A, no, I'm not yeah, on Wikipedia. yeah, yeah, yeah. Me either. So our guest is just that bad to the bone. But before we get to him, uh, yeah, bad enough to the bone. There's actually two Tim Buchanan's on Wikipedia, and he's the fam- He's the most famous one. And yeah. the other one actually played in the NFL. Yeah, and yeah. That's what I think is crazy is that he's that the Tim Buchanan's that famous. Yes. So. uh Great. Anyways, great uh, topics. I'm ready, excited to get into those topics. Uh, what do you got today? Oh, so today for my deal on this day in history, I picked uh, 
the Battle of Jutland from World War One, and that was you know May thirty first, nineteen sixteen, and so it is uh, one of the greatest naval battles in history. So it was between the German fleet and the British fleet. And the German fleet had twenty four battleships, five cruisers, eleven light ones, sixty three destroyers, all of this. Where and the British fleet had twenty eight battleships, nine cruisers, thirty four light cruisers, and eighty destroyers. Eighty destroyers. They had a much larger fleet, and they attacked them over by the Jutland Peninsula, um, which is Denmark, all right, the country of Denmark, for people who didn't do well in geography class. <laughs> but anyways, so the Germans, they actually end up escaping and getting out. Uh, so for the longest time, perception is reality. Mm-hmm. The Germans felt like and said that they won, but really um, they didn't because within, a, within three days, so on June 2nd, they only had 10 ships from that battle that were able to leave port. And then by July 3rd, their, I mean, their fleet's crippled. They recommend no more ship to ship. It has to be all submarines for us now. We, we can't do it and fight ship to ship. They killed us in this battle of Jutland. And it's, I mean, there were 100,000 troops aboard 250 ships. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I mean, just one of the most incredible naval battles that happened in world history. So I just think it's really cool. Um on that in World War One, so that's just my deal for today in history, the Battle of Jutland. Um, I, so I go to uh, Stanford, Texas last night to uh, hang out with a friend of mine, and uh, we're just cooking steaks and sitting around. And James Washington, was it? Yeah, I wished it was James Washington. <laughs> James Washington was, uh, uh, he was not the VIP guest uh, <laughs> that night. But uh, anyways, we were kind of sitting around to- talking, and a topic that came up is something that's called Enneagram. Now, Enneagram... I never heard of up that point, never, uh, but definitely was listening to what they had to say about it. So what that is is it's a person. It's these defining enneagram is actually means nine. They are defining what that uh, personalities are. You're, so they're wanting to categorize people in these nine different nine personalities, personality, depending so, on your traits and everything. So some people are labeled a one, some are two. Uh, some have a three, and there's all these things to it. Now, this could be a full. It, it was a full topic for the whole, you know, for a good part of the evening over all the things. I don't understand what the the need is to label yourself. I don't. I don't. I don't get where that's coming from. And so, <coughs> the people that are are sitting in there that are looking at this enneagram. They're saying that they just want to get such a deeper, deeper understanding of of themselves so that they can research, look up their strengths and weaknesses. Now, they obviously have not met my wife because some she's like on the Enneagram is a two and she's a redhead. So somehow like this is her personality. She's a two. Michelle, if you're listening, I didn't say anything. But she she is uh, a little bit later. She'll be a seven, which is. You go through the what the traits are that that personality. So I don't know how the the enneagram works for females, but I I don't. Well, and people not only change day to day, people change month to month, year to year, decade to decade. Yeah. People change and evolve for the most part. They change. Things change. Yeah, where always. Where their life experiences yes. have to go through some things, and so I I just. It is something that's that's big out there right now. It is something that's being talked about. It, it people are writing books about it. Um, and, and well, that's good for them. Props to them on that. Yeah, for for people to kind of you know want to self and look into themselves. It's an easy test. It you could look it up on YouTube. It it's very I easy. Reason, I think as far as people wanting to be 
labeled or put into a category or that they look for those things is more to do with they do want to know more about themselves, but you know, it's a lot easier to sit there and ha- do it on your phone or your computer or even pen to paper than sit down with somebody and have, have a big boy talk about what you're good at and what you're not good at and have to kind of go through some tough personal reflection. Yeah. You know, it's it's the it's an easier way to do it to achieve the same result. Right. Uh, you know, so you talking about that. So last night I got bored and I was shooting in the gym, missing basketball. Uh, even though I'm a baseball coach, I miss basketball. Love basketball. So I did see this and I did think it was really funny. Um, so the NBA, they are going to, uh, they're going to, they've got a proposal put together. They're wanting to restart the season. That's not funny. The thing that I do think is funny is, um, the Knicks are going to go ahead and be eliminated early from playoffs before the season is even over. They're not even going to be part of this restart plan. Now, to be fair, they're not the only team getting left out. It's going to be a 20 to 22 team restart, and they're only taking teams that have a a real shot to make the playoffs, which is 16. Right. So they're only going to have four to six teams who may not make the cut. And they've talked about a play-in tournament, all of that. That's not uh-huh. neither here nor there. The thing for me is that I, I just think it is sad how far the Knicks have just declined. They have become the Cleveland Browns of the basketball world. Yes, And they're so dysfunctional. They've lost two of their biggest and most iconic and well-known supporters in Spike Lee. Yes. And then another man who you couldn't pay me enough to throw out of an arena, Charles Oakley, right. former basketball player, Hall of Famer, who was an enforcer in his day right. in the NBA. Like, But they've lost those two dudes through the mismanagement. And, so, and the thing that was keeping them so relevant was they were a pop culture staple and everything else part of American culture. And they're losing that now to the Brooklyn Nets, who have KD, who have Kyrie, and have a great young team just in the same... I mean, same city in a different borough. Right. And it's it's just, it's crazy and it's a little sad. I'm, I, But I am having a little fun taking a shot at the Knicks. <laughs> it's fun to be on this side of it. I'm a Cowboys fan. I don't get to be on this side of this conversation yeah. very much. So uh, I did like that. But then another thing I saw that I thought this was really cool. So um, did you watch the rocket launch yesterday? Uh, no, I, it did come up on a Facebook Live thing, so I knew yeah. that it did happen, but did not watch so, it. So, uh, kind of an adjacent thing on this, but still to do with sports, the Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback, Josh Dobbs, uh, actually through the NFL Players Association in a, they call it a, um, what do they call it here, a, not an internship, but an externship. Oh, wow. Okay. But he got to work at NASA and be a part of that project. I couldn't find what his yeah. role really was, but I mean, he got to be a part of it, so... But Josh Dobbs went to the University of Tennessee. He's a what uh, majored in aerospace engineering, so he is a rocket scientist, which um, means at practice you cannot say that it's <laughs> rockets. You're not going to win that argument with right. him if you use that line right. uh, because he was also a 4.0. So he's not just a rocket scientist. He's not just certified. He's 4.0, um, and he was so smart. He actually, in 2017, from the University of Tennessee, he won what they call the Torchbearer Award. And that is, they, that is the highest honor that they have for an undergraduate student at the University of Tennessee, and he won that his senior year, uh, as well as, you know, being the starting quarterback in the SEC as well, you know, playing against Alabama oh, yeah. and everything else. Yeah. So I, I just thought that was really cool, though, to see him in a different light and using that intelligence and doing everything there. It's just a cool side. You don't always get to see 
that side of pro athletes of what they really do. You don't think of them as a normal person looking for a job. Their job is football. What is it? Um, Booby's grandpa says on uh, oh, Friday night, yeah. like, there's only one subject. Right. It's fo- it's only football. When you see a pro athlete, that's all you ever think. And seeing him in that setting and all, it's pretty cool. Absolutely. Well, and especially for us, you know, we talk about all the time, um, you know, kids and athletics, uh, you know, you have to be a student athlete and for him to take it to that level and, and then also get this experience to be able to do that and be able to do both at the highest level, uh, is really impressive. Um, but before we, before we get into our, uh, guest speaker here real fast, um, a couple jokes that came out last night, you know, Stryker and I were kind of sitting around and, and kind of just, uh, telling a few jokes and, um, the Michelle was sitting out there. My I'm wife. I'm sure Stryker won. He has a slew. And so uh, my wife's sitting out there, and it started getting a little chilly. Mosquitoes were kind of coming out, and, mm-hmm. and but it was kind of getting chilly as the evening was winding down. And uh, Stryker said, "Hey, you know, uh, if you're if you're cold, uh, just go stand in the corner. It's ninety degrees." Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a classic. <laughs> the math teacher in me is happy that Stryker said that. Um, my, you know, my joke. Uh, I mean, my joke off that. You know, I said, uh, "Women only call me ugly until they find out how much money I have. Then they call me ugly and poor." <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing that made that funnier was you had to look back to remember to read poor. <laughs> like, that's funny. Um, you know. Do you know why you can't ever hear a pterodactyl pee? Why you can't ever hear a pterodactyl pee? No. Because the pee is silent. <laughs> Those of you who don't know, you spell pterodactyl with a P at the beginning of it. I think the uh, I think Stryker wins. Oh, I yeah. think the math uh, the math one uh wins today. Hey, let's get into uh let's get into our guest. So excited uh to be able to have him on and uh let's get him introduced. Coach, thank you so much for for being on our podcast, and for the people that that know who you are, and obviously your legendary status and so so forth. We really kind of want to know a little bit of maybe where you grew up, and maybe some behind the scenes things that people might not know. Well, I grew up in Colleen, Texas. Uh, I'm family of seven kids. Uh, my dad was in the in the army when I was born, so. I'm the only one in my family born north of the Red River. Uh, I was actually born in Gary, Indiana. Oh, wow. Oh. So, so I'm known as the Yankee in the family. <laughs> I, I know that feeling. My dad's from Minnesota, and oh, I, yeah. I, that's one thing I that can't. I'll never have to live down that down. Well, I'm not only known as the one born north of the Red River. I'm more known as the one born, born north of the Brazos River. I'm the only one born <laughs> oh, north wow. of the Brazos. So I really am the Yankee. Yeah. Uh, but there were seven kids, and uh, we we grew up playing every day. I mean, it was a there was some type of game, whether it be football, basketball, softball, dodgeball, something <clears throat> every day. And I'm uh, I had five of my brothers and sisters older than me, so I got my butt kicked every day too. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think there was a day in the summer that I didn't get a bloody nose or a black eye from one of my brothers or one of my sisters kind of kind of toughened me up and got me ready to when we did start playing school sports uh, to play sports and uh, uh, the the unique thing uh, people ask me why I started coaching and, and 
my older brothers and sisters, uh, uh, none of them graduated from high school. Uh, oh, wow. Especially the boys. Uh, you know, when, when, when they got to be 16, 17 years old in my family, and, you know, uh, we went to work. Uh, we started doing construction or, or, or something in, in that line of work. And I was the only one that kept playing football, actually, uh, into high school. And that not only kept me in high school, but it, it got me into college. I, you know, I, I'd have never finished finished high school or, or, or gone to college if it hadn't been for football. And, Absolutely. Uh, so that's why really – you know, people ask me something, you know, what motivates you to be a coach? And that kind of took me into coaching. And, you know, I, I started out at Abilene Christian University out of Colleen High School and we went to uh, end up graduating from Southwest Texas State, Texas State in, in San Marcos. Awesome. Coached, coached all over all over Texas after that. And uh, uh, Florence, uh, Bastrop, uh, Colleen Ellison, the colony up in Louisville, and then at Aiden. Consolidate. I am consolidated in College Station uh, before taking the Alito job in okay. '93. Wow. Well, Coach, we, we're going to play a little game here. We like to call the hot seat, and uh, this is how it's played. Um, we'll put a timer on here, and you have five seconds to, to answer the question in which I'm about to ask. And for each time you can answer the question within the five seconds, uh, you, you get a point. Um, and I know you're. I know uh, we're we're coaches, so you always got any any game we're playing. You got to keep points on, uh, but you don't win a prize. Uh, but you you don't you don't really lose either. So I. I uh, but don't be too nervous about. But this. we will send you a free shirt. So. <laughs> I don't like that. You gotta win something. Well, you, I tell you what, you're you're going golfing today, right? You're you're okay. gonna go golfing today. So uh, if you can answer. Uh, Four out of the five in time, uh, your son is uh, is gonna buy your drinks for the day. And if not, you're gonna do something selfless today, and you're gonna buy a random stranger a drink today. Does that sound good? So if you lose, you gotta do something. You gotta do something selfless today and buy a random stranger something. Okay. All right. Here we go. You got five seconds. What are the three scariest things you've ever done? Scariest things? Yes, sir. Uh. Jumping off a water tower, uh, going skiing for the first time, snow skiing, Tom. and then getting married. <laughs> well, uh, that's no time, so no point for you, but great job. All right. Here we go. Name three female celebrities you'd like to go on a blind date with. I can't answer that. My wife's in the category. <laughs> Smart man. All right. That's, that's for closure of that point. Good yeah. job. All right, here we go. Next one. Uh, three most impressive high school athletes you've ever seen. Jonathan Gray, Earl Campbell, and Eric Dickerson. Okay, nice. point. Great job. You got that in 3.97 yeah. seconds. Great job. All right, here we go. Uh, three craziest things you've ever seen on the golf course. On the golf course? Yes, sir. Uh, falling in the water, driving a cart in the water, and driving a cart into a tree. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, great job, great 4. job. 4.99 seconds on that one. That was good. All right, so here we go. So this is uh, this is either your son's going to be taking care of you for today or you're going to do something selfless. Um, three things that you always misplace. Keys. Uh, 
Uh, wallet and cap. Oh, great job, great job. That's the point. Don't even take your wallet with you today when you yeah. go to the golf course. Don't even take it. <laughs> Tell your son he's handling everything today. <laughs> Welcome to the world. Yeah. Well, great job, Coach. We really appreciate that. Um, and uh, we're going to kind of get into asking you some questions and just uh, feel free to be candid and relax and nothing too nothing too intense. Yeah, for, okay. uh, for me, one of the things that – I just wanted to know about it. Like you said, you took the Alito job in 93. Just just kind of walk us through the growth of that program when you took from when you took over to where you, y'all you are now. Well, when I got here, we were a uh, 3A school district back when, when 5A was the largest classification. Uh, we were in the district with South Lake Carroll, uh, Bridgeport, Springtown, Lake Worth, Lake Dallas, Castleberry, uh, and playing some, you know, we were playing Alvarado and some really good football teams, and, uh, the non-district uh, schedule, and uh, we weren't very good. Uh, I was the fifth coach in four years. Uh, most of them lasted about seven months. Uh, one of them only stayed two days. Oh, wow. Not, wow. All, yeah, not all of them were getting fired. It was just... Alito had been really good back in the late 60s and early 70s when they were a Class A school. And they grew when, when General Dynamics, which is now Lockheed, uh, started uh, building jets on the west side of Fort Worth. A lot of engineers moved to Alito and they brought kids in. And, and not all of them were, were the same old kids that were living in Alito at that time. Uh, most of them were engineers' kids. and nothing against engineers but they don't typically produce big football players right. <laughs> uh, so, so the school district grew from a 1a school to a 3a school that did not uh, we, we we got a lot better or i shouldn't say we uh they got a lot better in tennis and golf and, and uh, uil sports. academics <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, but, but we didn't they didn't when they jumped that classification, they really fell off through the late 70s and 80s and, and so on. So when I got here in 93, we had 17 kids in the varsity, junior varsity and varsity athletic class. And like I said, we're in a district with teams like South Lake Carroll who had won back-to-back 3A state championships. Uh, needless to say, we we weren't very competitive. And, uh, right. Uh, my goal when I got here was to try to turn the program around. And honestly, last three years, uh, because nobody had done that since Chuck Curtis back in the in the eighties. Uh, and I believe the last time they had made the playoffs was eighty eight, uh, and they got beat in the first round. Mm. So. It, it wasn't the, the best program, but one thing I, I noticed when I when I started looking at the program, there were a lot of kids that were in middle school and, and high school, young, the young, lower grades, tenth grade, ninth grade, that that their dads or their uncles played on that seventy four team that got beat in the state finals, and you know, so I said, you know, there, there's some genetics here. And some kids who, who have, at least their dads or, or their family not remember what it was like when Alito was, was good. Right. So I took the job and, and you know, uh, one of the funny things, I started watching, the first thing coaches do, they start watching. Back then it was, it was film and video. And in the, 
the two scrimmages in 10 games that I watched from the 92 season, Alito gave up a touchdown in 10 of those the first play, of the first time that the <laughs> opponent touched the ball. Oh, wow. Whether it was a, a kickoff return, a punt return, or first play from scrimmage. Right. So our motto was start on time. And uh, we we did much better in 93. I think we only gave up touchdowns on five, in five of those uh, 12 on the first time the opponent touched <laughs> the ball. But uh, we, we really, I mean, it was a, it, it was a good school district. And our kids really, I mean, they would work hard. Problem was, they hadn't had a coach stay around long enough to have an off-season, much less build a football team Right. Uh, in five years. So that was our goal when we came in, is to, to, to teach the kids, reteach the kids how to win, and then also to to show them that we were here, that we weren't, that I wasn't going anywhere, that I, you know, I, I was going to be a part of the community and, and wanted to see this place be great again. When did you feel like y'all, y'all did finally turn that corner that you felt the tide turn in that battle to, to teach them how to win, to, to turn that program around? When did you feel like that happened? Well, that first year we went two and eight. Then the second year we were six, three, and one. And then third year we, we did the same thing. And we, we felt like we really turned the corner in 95, but mm-hmm. had some bad luck in a, a game where a quarterback, uh, starting quarterback, who was also a free safety, uh, uh, got ejected from a game. Uh, oh. And he was by far our best player. We ended up, instead of, Going to the playoffs that year, we ended up not making. And then in 96, that same group of kids, we ended up going to the quarterfinals. And that was when when things started getting better. That was the first year for us to make the playoffs. And we went quarterfinals in 96, uh, state final, uh, semifinals in 97. Uh, graduated 21 out of 22 starters. Uh, and then in 98, we were picked sixth in our district, and we ended up winning the, the three A state championship, beat be Quero and Astrodome that year, yeah. 14 to 7. And so, really, you'd have to. Wow. I, I was, even though we won state in 98, I felt like we had, we had made the big turn in 96. Okay. Well, one of the things that's important, for, you know, just for me, and, and, and I'm talking from a coaching standpoint and, and just even a business standpoint, I'm I'm a real big proponent of practices and, 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 and your daily habits and things like that. What is something you feel like that you have done that's non-X and O related that you feel like uh, separates you from the norm? Well, and I think a lot of people do this now, but back back when we, we started doing it, we, we try not to spend too much time on a practice field. I, I worked for guys uh, in my first five jobs that, that would would stay on the practice field three to four hours a day. Golly. And just, I mean, you just lose the kids. Uh, you know, they, 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 they weren't highly organized. As, I mean, they were organized people, but, you know, uh, what we did is, is, is we went to trying to never stay on the field more than an hour and 50 minutes. Uh, our goal was an hour and 45 minute practices. And to do that, we had to be highly organized uh, uh, and we, we, we scripted everything we did. If it was a 
didn't matter if it was an inside run period, an outside pass period, an outside run, a screen period. We scripted everything. We had we had the the, the defense script, what hash mark we were going to be on. I mean, we did everything, and then we tried to never stop in practice to coach a kid. We did. We we coached them. If I needed to coach one kid, we pulled that kid out of practice, coach coached him on the side, and we never broke uh, stride running plays or, 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 or doing drills. That way we, we got things done in, in a timely manner. And the other side of that, we, we did everything so quickly, we didn't have to spend a whole lot of time conditioning kids at the end of practice as right. far as running kids. But I felt like that was the thing. Now, today, I think everybody does this today. So what? So I, then what would I, separate you then, like you feel like today? Because obviously what, you, what you've been able to accomplish, you know, within the last decade is, you know, is, is just unbelievable and may never be matched, you know, ever again and and so what since you feel like so many people are doing that what now do you feel like you've had to reinvent yourself a little bit maybe i i'm gonna say the, the biggest thing that we've done is consistency we, we we have been able to maintain our program from the seventh grade up since 1993 i mean it we have we have changed very little. I mean, our terminology is still the same. We still run the same offense, uh, the same defense. We've been a, an even front defense since I got here in 1993. Right. We've been a, an option run or pass uh, offense since since we got here in 1993. Uh, but I, really, and by saying that, the consistency, at the same time, I think one of the things that, that really sets us apart in all that is our ability to adapt to our to our kids. Uh, you know, there's been years when when we threw the ball more than we ran it. We, there's been years when we when we run it more than we throw it. Uh, and there's been years when we change our offense. You know, we've some years we're inside zone team, some years we're outside zone team, some years we're power football team uh, on offense. And we've had, you know, you see some guys that, that try to make their make their kids adapt to their coaching. Right. We as coaches adapt to our players. Now we're always going to be a, a run pass option type football team on offense. We're always going to give our quarterback an option of, of handing it off, throwing it, pitching it, or running it. Right. Uh, we're always going to be an even front uh, defense. Uh, you know, but we're, we will change those up to meet our kids and to, to, to fit our kids and what our kids do best. Okay. Uh, one thing I wanted to note for for you uh as a person who motivates you to be successful do you have a you know a person that you look up to a mom dad a, a former teacher coach or maybe it's your wife kids uh, who motivates you to be successful well i mean there's multiple people uh, you know it's hard to name just one but you know uh in the beginning, it was it was my dad and my family. I mean, I had two big brothers, and, uh, you know, four, uh, three big, four big sisters, really, uh, or three big sisters that just, you know, always, always 
always were trying to make me be the best person I could be. Uh, in coaching, you know, uh, there's there's a there's several coaches that have, you know, Gene Rogers who was our AD and head football coach in Colleen when I was growing up is in the, the um, Balfour Hall of Honor, uh, and then his son Ross, who I worked for. Uh, in College Station, those two probably molded me more as far as the type of coach I am. I mean, our our coaches, coaching manual, our staff manual is the same one I, uh, that the coaches in Colleen had when I was in junior high. Oh, I mean, wow. it's, yeah. it's, it's changed very little. Yeah. Uh, so, to uh, we those two people probably molded me more, but there's there's a ton of coaches that I've worked for and worked around that, that really had a lot to do with who I am. But then the person who has, brought, has, has meant more to me and, and I'd have never been a head coach without her uh, is my wife, Rebecca. Yeah. I mean, she, she helped instill uh, a lot of confidence uh, in, my, in, in myself. Uh, I was... Uh, she... She she helped me believe that I could be a head coach one day, and helped me helped me uh, develop an attitude, a positive, a more positive attitude in just about everything I do. Awesome. Well, coach, this is something that I really don't know anything about, and uh, you know I, I've grown up in uh, the Gordon area and went out in West Texas and spent twelve years out there and came back to. Uh, this area from Hamilton back to Gordon now and one of the things that come up because I run up the interstate is the Walsh Ranch and don't know anything about it but definitely know it's uh, beside you could you talk to us a little bit about that and what it is and is it going to affect you or how's it going to affect you positively or negatively well uh, it both it's, it's uh, you know, the Walsh Ranch, Alito ISD is one of the larger school districts landmass-wise in, in the North Texas area. Uh, when I got here, we had multiple 10,000-acre-plus uh, 10, 10, ranches. We had the Walsh Ranch. We had the Dean Ranch. We had the Markham Ranch. You had the uh, Beggs Ranch. Uh, you had the Bailey Ranch. You, know, you had all of these ranches that were working ranches i mean it was nothing to see a cowboy walk into the coffee shop at 10 o'clock in the morning in spurs and, and chaps with chaps on. i mean <laughs> yeah. I, I mean they yeah. just got off they just got off horseback i mean the dean ranch barn is right across the street from the the coffee shop where we all would go and have coffee in the morning uh so it's nothing to see those those cowboys in there every, every day and a lot of our kids' uh, dads worked on those ranches. But the, the, what I guess it was 1996-97, the first time I heard that the Walsh Ranch was developing. And at that time, they were, I mean, they, they, they should, I, I saw a plan. And it, it, that, this was in 1997. Yeah, I would, I would they, have never thought that. I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't know it was going back the, even that far. Oh, it, it, it went, and, uh, Malcolm Loudon, who is the executor of the Walsh Ranch, he showed me a, a plan one night, and he said by 2001 there'd be 5,000 people on the Walsh Ranch. By 2010 there'd be 50,000, and by 2020 there'd be over 100,000 people. And uh, 
about that time, fracking started. A little bit after that, fracking started, and they started drilling natural gas wells out there, and they were making about a billion dollars a year on natural gas. And so the development slowed down, and they wanted to get all the gas, and then the price of oil went up, and, and with the fracking technology, they started drilling wells all over that uh, 10,000 acre plus ranch. And so the development slowed down uh, while they did that. And once they got all the oil wells drilled and all the gas wells drilled, uh, they started on the infrastructure of the, of the ranch. And it, doing something that big and having to build overpasses over I-20 and I-30 and, and bringing water in and sewer, because that's one of the, the, the things that kept Alito growing slowly. Uh, we've always been growing, but we grew slowly because we had no city water or sewer. Right. So if you came to Alito and wanted to build a house, you had either you had to drill, drill a well and, and put in your own septic system. So everybody was you know buying anywhere from two to you know hundred acre spots out here. Uh, now with the Walsh Ranch and some of these new developments, we've got city water and sewer, so we're starting to grow faster. Uh, the positive thing about it is that we are we are doing a really good job of making sure that the people who move to Alito understand what it means to be a Bearcat. Okay. That that's the that that is the thing that our superintendents have done a really good job of making sure our the, the new people. We we actually have a a little thing called Bearcat One Hundred and One that we do in August for all the new people that move to Alito. Yeah, wow. To try to teach them, hey, this is Alito because uh, we don't want it. We don't want a bunch of people from California coming in and turning Alito into <laughs> a California. Right, uh, and I use that as just an example. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with California, but we want Alito to stay Alito. Right, right. And we've been able to grow from when I got here in '93 with under 500 kids in high school to almost 2,000 kids in high school now, and things haven't changed. We are still the same type school district, even though we've we you know we've we had 1,800 kids K through 12 in 1993. Now we have 1,850 in high school. So we've grown tremendously, but we've maintained that. Now, going back to the Walsh Ranch, uh, they've done a good job of that. The, the Walshes, you know, they, the, their kids went to school in Alito, so they don't want Alito to change either. They want it to be the same Alito, but it's, it's, it's coming. Will they, will uh, there be a high school on that or, or no? Uh, we are building a middle school. We, we actually bought property for a high school, uh, just right adjoining the Walsh Ranch, but we actually are, uh, turn that into building a middle school on that property. Because it, to be honest with you, it costs a dang much money to build a high school now. I mean, to build a, a five A high school costs you three hundred million dollars. Oh wow! Wow. I mean, it's 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 unbelievable what it costs. And until uh, until the Walsh Ranch starts developing uh, commercial businesses and more and more commercial businesses get here, uh, we probably won't build a second high school until we, we have to. The good thing about Alito is our high school, uh, which holds our 10th through 12th graders, uh -huh. and we, we've got a 
about a thousand in there right now. It's built for 2,400 kids. We have a ninth grade building that's built for right out a thousand kids, and we have 400, 450 kids in there. So we can still grow a bunch without having to build a second high school. Okay. Now, what what the Walsh Ranch has done to us is we're having to build more elementaries, and we have one elementary already in the Walsh Ranch. Uh, but it, it, it it's it, the negative is. It puts a lot of stress on on our tax base right now because we don't have a whole lot of commercial business out there yet. Right. The positive is uh, it was built properly, and they are they are the people who move here want to be Bearcats. They yeah. don't want to turn us into the Mustangs or something <laughs> like that. They, they, to, they all want to be Bearcats. Awesome. Thank you for answering. Uh, that. Can you just tell us a little bit about your the decision you made? You know you've AD head coach from 93 to 2013 and then you decided to hey you're just going to be the athletic director um then and then after that you know you end up you and coach Wood y'all y'all flip-flopped you went from AD to head coach and he went from head coach to AD so if you can just kind of talk about those decisions a little bit I just think it'd be very interesting yeah. well in the 2013 when I got here in, in 93 like I said we had uh, you know 1700 kids in K through 12 and 2013-14 we had almost 1700 kids in high school uh, I was still the AD head football coach did not have a secretary did not have an assistant AD and in that 2013-14 school year we won state in football, baseball softball, went to state in soccer went to state in girls basketball had multiple individual state champions in track and field and and, uh, volleyball had gone to state to the state tournament i mean so we were extremely successful in all sports Uh, we had almost 1700 kids in athletics in 99 teams 7th through 12th grade uh and I was trying to run all that all by myself. And I went in and talked to the superintendent to find out if we could, if we could hire a secretary and an assistant AD. And he said, we can't do it. We don't have the money to do that. Uh, so uh, that spring I decided I'm, I'm going to, I'd already talked to coach Wood, Steve about it and said, I told him, I said, Hey, I, I don't know that I can do this anymore. I said, I, I can't be a good football coach. And, be a good AD and a good dad. I can't be a good dad and be a good football coach and AD. I mean, I, I, something was going to suffer, and what was happening is my family was suffering. Right. right. And so I said, I'm a. Uh, that summer, I just decided, hey, I'm a. I'm gonna go full time AD, and Steve took over, and I mean, it, it just kept rolling like clockwork. I mean, it, it was. It, we didn't miss a beat. Uh, the only thing was, after about two months of playing golf and, and going deer hunting and stuff like that, I realized <laughs> I didn't hate deer. Yeah, I didn't hate deer that bad, and I wasn't that good of a golfer. Right. And I miss, I miss being around kids. Yeah. Uh, I actually coached uh, JV team tennis a couple of years uh, just to get out of the office because we needed we needed help in tennis. Uh, <laughs> Awesome. But I missed it. And so I actually looked at several coaching jobs around the state at that time that everybody wanted me to be an AD and the coach, and the head football coach, and I didn't want to do that again. Right. So I finally said, all right, I'm not going to be able to get a, 
the coaching job I want. And a good friend of mine, Jeff Gossett, worked for Paragon Sports Constructors. And he said, come go to work for us. And so, you know, I've been around the sports all my life. I said, heck yeah, I can sell turf. And so I, I actually had started working for them already. And Dr. Bone came in and asked me if I would uh, do both, work for the school and sell turf until January of, you know, 2019 and let her transition in. I said, sure, I will. And uh, then when Steve decided he wanted to be the AD, she, we, Dr. Bone and I started talking. Next thing you know, I'm coaching football again, which <laughs> uh, is, is what I like to do. Absolutely. I mean, I, it's 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 the first time I've ever been just a football coach. You know, I, even when I played football, I did other sports, and I've always been. And when I was an assistant coach, I always coached the second sport. And then as an AD, you had two jobs. It's the first time all I've had to do is coach football, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, so then speaking of you know be, getting around kids and things like that uh one of the things of, of being an ad you have to hire uh coaches and and something that you've seen maybe a trend you've seen in coaches that you've had to hire back in the 90s versus the coaches that you're hiring now what are some strengths and weaknesses of maybe some of the guys you had to hire in the 90s and what's some strength and weaknesses of the guys that are coming out of the college now that you're having to hire well the, the biggest difference is is these young coaches don't understand what the work ethic, the work ethic involved in it, and they're they're not willing to pay a price of starting. You know, uh, Robbie Jones, for example, our our offensive coordinator. Robbie started out teaching in the middle school and coaching at the freshman level, and has worked his way up to be a varsity coach. Uh, you know, our head baseball coach Chad Berry started out coaching at the middle school. Uh, Billy Mathis, who's the head coach in AD now at Weatherford next door to us, Billy uh, played for us and then came back and started out coaching in the middle school and, and worked his way up. Uh, you, you look at coaches today and all of them want to be a varsity coach right out of right out of high right out of college. They all think, well, you know, I played high school and college football, I'm ready. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to pay those dues of starting at the middle school level and working your way up to be a, a high school and then a varsity coach. Uh, so they, they miss a lot. I mean, when when you're a middle school coach, you've got to learn how to coach an entire football team, not just a position. And what we get today, we get a lot of really good coaches who, are, who can coach a position but as far as coaching a team and, and understanding how to, you're a D tackle coach, working, working, knowing how to work with wide receivers and quarterbacks and, and running backs and DBs, you know, you, you don't see that as much anymore as what you did 20 and 30 years ago. Right. Um, you know, one thing that we kind of, we, we've talked about, you know, just from traveling to different staffs and things like that. Um, if, if, if a younger coach is listening in some things, how how important is it for a coach to know how all the puzzle pieces come together? Maybe your wide receiver coach to know how your offensive line is blocking a scheme, or do you like to s- separate that out and 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 maybe they don't know the, the whole picture? How important is is that or not? Um, that is, I, I started this what I was talking about earlier. I mean, it's the same. 
that is the most important thing to your program because everybody needs to know all tournament. We, we still have staff meetings where we go over. Our offensive coaches sit there and watch us go over our, our defensive schemes. Our defensive coaches watch us go through our offensive schemes and terminology, and we still have terminology meetings, so everybody uses the same terminology on offense and defense, special teams, and so on. Uh, and for a, a coach to know all aspects, both sides of the ball, what our team is is trying to do is very, very important. And, and that's the reason I like for coaches to start at the middle school level and work their way up in our in our system uh, because that way they learn offense, defense, special teams. And it's, it's not just I coach the D-tackles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, talking about the big picture, um, how optimistic are you and your coaches there at Alito about the this UIL plan and big picture for our summer and you know and us playing football in the fall. Well, I think if if all the coaches in, uh, around the state and the country, really not just Texas, but uh, mainly Texas right now, if if we will follow the, the procedures that the UIL has set down and the uh, and if, if if we don't do anything silly, I think we will. Our kids will stay safe, uh, and we'll be able to play football this fall. Now, if we go out and we get two or three thousand kids sick with coronavirus, I don't think we'll play this fall. Uh, so we've got to be smart about how we do things, and we've got to be we've got to communicate with our kids because right now there's people out there trying to get our kids to go play seven on seven all over the state of Texas. Uh, I've got a guy here in the Metroplex who's, who's uh, contacting our, our DBs and wide receivers and wanting them to go over in the Metroplex and going to schools and, uh, you know, trying to get them to go do some one-on-one stuff. And I'm sitting there going, guys, right now you don't need to be around people from Dallas and, and, and all over the Metroplex. We need to make sure we, we're just around ourselves until this, this virus runs its course and don't take a chance on bringing that virus back into Parker County. Because right now we've got nearly 200,000 people living in Parker County, and I think we have 60 cases of the virus. So we don't we don't need to go out and you know put ourselves in a situation where we can make more people in Parker County uh, come in contact with the virus. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you said something earlier that I, I and maybe I misheard you, but you seem really passionate about a motto that you had. And what's something for you as maybe a season that stands out for you? Uh, are you big on a motto every year? Are you big on a quote or or something? Uh, how do you motivate yourself through some of that stuff? I, I'm gonna say the the thing that has been the most consistent uh, motto or or saying that we we've had, and this goes back to the old annual consolidated days. Uh, in '88, our first year in College Station, I was uh, you know, assistant coach there for Ross Rogers. And, Ross's philosophy is always don't sweat the don't sweat the small stuff, and yeah, you know, I'll never I'll never forget. I walked in, we had our evaluation of the year, and he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "Well, Ross, I said I'm just the opposite of what you're saying." I said, "I I believe that we've got to take care of the little things, and then the winning's going to take care of itself." 
we we kind of changed and started doing that. We ended up playing for a state championship, three of them, and, and winning one of them while I was there. And then when we came to Alito, we did the same thing. And, and that's always been my my motto: is if you take care of the little things, you know, the blocking, the tackling, proper steps, uh, cleaning up your locker, uh, you know, keeping your locker room clean, little things. The, the big things and like winning, it's going to take care of itself. You don't have to talk about winning a whole lot. Take, talk talk about taking care of the little things. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, do you have a book that is re- really impacted you? Doesn't have to be coaching wise, just in life, or a favorite book that you have that you just really enjoyed. I, I tell you what, the, the Jim Getz book about uh, the Masonic home. Uh, to, the book I believe it was Twelve Mighty Orphans. Uh, that book right there is probably one of the best books I've ever wrote, uh, wrote, uh, read. Uh, it's, it talks about the, the mighty mites of the Masonic home, the kids who played at the Masonic homes and how they uh, developed into a football team. Kind of remind me of Alito when I first got there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they had 12 kids that turned out to be one of the most dominating football team in texas back in the back in the 1930s and 40s well and for our listeners who may not like to read they're obviously making a movie now of it did they do some of that in the alito area or using the alito you kids now they, they did not not that i know of anyway. yeah i do know that steve reed who was one of the head coaches in Alito, was actually one of those coaches back in the Back in the seventies, when they played for a state championship, Steve uh, was the head coach at the Masonic Home uh, at one point. And actually, when I because I, I I relied on Steve a lot. He's, he's his family all lives here, and actually, his son-in-law was our offensive coordinator, Greg Nelson, for a while. And I asked Steve, I said, "What was your what was your best job? What was what was the best job you ever had?" I, I was thinking he was going to say Jacksboro, or or when he was a college coach at UTA, or a head coach at Toledo, or something like that. He goes, Masonic Home. I go, really? He goes, yep, Masonic Home. He goes, no parents to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, Coach, man, we appreciate you being on here so much. I hope you play a heck of a golf game today. I still challenge you to uh, buy a complete random stranger, uh, uh, you know, a a beverage today. And and, uh, I'm so appreciative and congratulations on – on your successes and your humbleness to be able to to make such a difference in kids' lives and getting back into the business because of how amazing you are with kids. Alito is is so blessed and fortunate to to have you and uh, in their community for sure. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you all for having me on, and I appreciate it. I mean, uh, doing doing things for kids and, and working with kids is. Uh, an unbelievable opportunity uh, to wait. It's a, a, not many people get to have a profession or like this, and, and we've got to take advantage of it when we get this opportunity. Well, we'll uh, we'll let Coach Ladd close us out. And uh, again, we appreciate everything. Yeah, this has been uh, uncommonly good with me, Alan Ladd, and Mike Reed. And as always, it's been real and it's been fun, but it hasn't been real fun. See y'all next time.